but this is not your like you're not bell hooks you're not Andre Lord you're not those people this is not yours you can't take ownership of it and then I had to like again check myself and say who am I to be that hi everyone I'm Uswa and I'm Yasmin welcome to inner work ally squared's official podcast where we learn how to better practice allyship Ally Squared's team resides and works on the unceded and unsurrendered territories of the Algonquin peoples, but our work extends across Turtle Island. We have given our respect to the first peoples of this land and commit to decolonizing efforts within our organization. Today, we're going to be talking about community care and collective consciousness. And we want to talk about this topic because Ally Square developed six pillars that define active allyship. And one of them is about knowing that your individual actions must be done in line with collective action and prompt collective change. Yeah, that one was a really big one for me when I was developing those pillars and doing the research for it, because I keep feeling like we're so stuck in the I statements when it comes to allyship. We, you know, we fight the fact that allyship is not an identity at mm-hmm. Ally Squared. And so when we're talking about the fact that allyship is not an identity, it's for other people. How mm-hmm. can we still root that within the individual context? It has to be within collective. So even if we're doing things as an individual, we're still doing them in line with broader aspects of society and the movement. So for example, if we're donating um, for land defenders, then we're not the ones that are like defending the land, we're Mm -hmm. donating, right? So it's part of that bigger movement of Indigenous peoples defending their land. Mm -hmm. And so it's important for us to understand that and also talk about the fact that, like, I spent the first decade of my life not in this country and in a country that was very focused on community. So for me coming here, even if I was young, was like a huge culture shock about like those I statements, like I said, always focusing on like, you have to prop yourself up, your ties Mm -hmm. to your family aren't the same way, the family dynamics here aren't the same. And also like community is like, it's equated with neighborhood, Yeah, which for me doesn't really make sense. I don't know half my neighbors, Yeah, but like, it's not like a close connection or a tight knit group. And so all of those things mean that places like Canada, the United States and most of essentially Western Europe are really favoring individualism. And I mean, like a really good example of that is looking at our Charter of Rights and Freedoms, the amount that it's on like individual rights versus communal rights or collective rights, it Mm -hmm. tells you what priorities we have as um, as a country. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think we're, we're always taught about our individual welfare and successes more than the welfare of others. And this translates a lot into the nonprofit industrial complex that we have, which is a series of systems and institutions designed to address inequities in society. And if we compare that to if we lived in a collectivist society, community welfare would be prioritized and policies and actions would be designed for the benefit of everyone. So we wouldn't need an entire complex to address inequalities. Yeah, it's it's all about those structures. And I really wanted to reinforce that in that conversation we're having today, because it's not about like just the feeling of individualism or the feeling of collectivism. It's actually rooted so much into the ways our systems are designed. Mm-hmm. Like charity is a side thing. It's not like, ad- it's addressing inequities as a whole industry now that profits off of that rather Mm -hmm. than like intrinsic to you want to be helping your neighbors you want to be helping your friends you want to be helping your community and 
that tells you so much about like what we live in, what's being prioritized. And what I was thinking about when we were preparing for this episode was also mental health and yeah. how when we talk about mental health, we say, okay, this person is having a mental health issue um, and or they're experiencing mental health problems. And so we're going to designate, you know, this medication for it and they're going to therapy and they're going to use these um, different what what do I call it treatments Mm -hmm. but we never think about how like mental health is as an epidemic or how we talk about how community care can help address feelings of isolation loneliness and a lot of issues like that and so for me the central question today is how do we build a collective consciousness in a society that's essentially entirely designed to center the individual person So today we're going to be talking to Camille Ahmed and Camille is a first generation Pakistani immigrant. He's the organizer of Community Fridge in Kitchener-Waterloo and a graduate of Global Studies and Community Engagement at Wilfrid Laurier. So thanks for coming, Camille. We really appreciate it. Thanks for having me, folks. I'm really honored to be here. Yep. And we actually know you from high school, which is, it's been a hot minute yeah it's been a little while makes us feel old but it's fine and so it's it's nice yeah. to connect with you again yeah small world of uh of change makers and people trying to do good I'm glad we're re- able to reconnect yeah absolutely and so we ask all of our guests this question and you can take it whatever way you want and it's essentially what inner work have you had to do to, to be where you are today yeah, I think that's a really good and profound question to start with because, you know, one of the things that I've said throughout this project of building Community Fridge KW and maintaining it is um, something that I've had to do on a personal level to be able to do that is check myself and check my ego and my pride. Something that I have written behind me on that bulletin board is don't drink your own Kool-Aid. Um, and that's a daily reminder to me because I think for a lot of us who come out of traditional project management roles or who have experienced in organizational leadership in its traditional senses. Like Uswa and I were both on student council in high school. And that was our earliest, um, you know, one of the earliest conditionings around how to manage people, how to manage projects and how to own, uh, you know, efforts. Uh, and so it takes a lot of internal work for me on a daily basis to not think like that when I'm leading Community for KW because it's not about me. You know, I have to intentionally remind myself to keep my name and my face out of it because what we want this to be is a sustainable, long-lasting, community-owned project that doesn't belong to anyone, any one person. It belongs to the community. Accountability is spread evenly. Everybody's roles are equal, um, and there is no hierarchy or no power differential. So for that to you know, be able to be realized, I have to keep myself and all of the other organizers have to keep ourselves out of it. Um, we also have to remind ourselves that you know, we can't be in this role forever. For it to be owned by the community and for it to be sustainable and you know, continue to move through its organic cycles uh, of providing food access and reducing food waste, it can't be owned by me. In two years' time, I know I have to exit. And for me to make an effective exit in two years' time, all I do now is about building capacity and building um, sustainability. So very easily, we could take actions that are good for the moment without consideration of how this project would be like, you know, two weeks, two months, two years down the road. But that's something that I would say is a constant internal dialogue with myself, like, will what I'm doing now be relevant in two years time? If I put my name out there, will that hinder other people from getting involved? Is, you know, a new tool that we're creating going to 
create more entryways for people to get involved with the project or is it going to close more entryways? So that's a big piece around personal ego and pride um, and our own, you know, um, understandings of leadership and management. And I think especially now, uh, there's a lot of pressure for young people to create something, to create impact, to be CEOs, to be founders. And that's phenomenal. That's awesome. If you've got an idea and a gap you want to fill, but that should never be the first goal or the priority. If your goal is to create impact, there's often um, opportunities to do that without you starting something. Now, in the case of Community Fridge KW, we just happen to be the ones who started this project, but that's really not the focus of this effort at all. Um, so that's, that would be one of the biggest things I have to do on a personal level every day. Yeah, absolutely. That resonates with me a lot, especially um, I had a mentor this past summer ask me, would Ally Squared exist with that if Oswa just left today? And it was really hard for me because I had to say that the answer was no. And it wasn't because other people couldn't do it. It was really because I was like taking all of the control for it. And it's really hard to do in a situation where like you're actively invested in this and it matters so much to you and it's not easy to do. There's no reward for this kind of work. Sometimes you get those glimmers of community making or people being like, thank you so much for creating this space. But on the whole, it's not easy work. People are constantly hating at you. People are constantly fighting with you. It's so hard to get like capacity building funding and things. And so sometimes you just want to hold on to it to protect it. And what I had to learn was that if I had to create a space where it was all around community and it was radical in a way where it fought everything the nonprofit industrial complex wanted it to be, then I had to let go of the reins and I had to involve other people in the decision making process. And it's still hard. And I think Yasmin, you could probably, <laughs> she's laughing because she knows, she knows yeah. how much yeah. it's it's so intrinsically tied to our identities as well. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, you're 100% right in that this work is gonna, this work existed before us, this work is gonna exist after us. We are just one moment in time and mm -hmm. making this stuff happen. And so we have to center ourselves in the fact that we wanna progress as much as possible. But at the end of the day, this isn't our movement. This is not for us to hold and take ownership of. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, one of the things I've always called ourselves in this in this role and something that I call myself even outside of Community First KW is a facilitator. Um, even in the spaces where I've been called a leader, I would rather be a facilitator just because it, I think it speaks to that capacity piece that we're addressing. And I think looking back to our high school experience, I think Uswa and I always had a lot in common. Um, and I think that's why we were good friends and why we did have a mentor-mentee relationship where it was mutual and we were constantly teaching ourselves, teaching each other. But yeah, one of the things that we had in common was this like ownership piece because it came from this place of like, I'm creating value and adding purpose and bringing something to the table. And I'm going to hold this near and dear because not only is it important to me, but because I want to see this go far and succeed. And when it comes to mutual aid work and when it comes to decentralized action and when it comes to allyship, it's very, like you said, it's very hard to just take that hat off and be like, that works there. It just won't work here. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And it's also the fact that we have seen our entire lives, the fact that like young brown folks are never allowed to take ownership of things. We're not allowed to lead things. We're not allowed to like have take charge or have control over things. And so it's like, it's within our culture or South Asian culture, but it's also within like the broader society that tells us that whiteness controls everything. And so it's, it's really hard to say, okay, I want 
I don't want to co-opt whiteness. I don't want to be the next, you know, person who like the next oppressor, the next person who's taking things away from community. But when you get told your entire life that you're not going to be listened to, that you're not going to be in charge, that you need to be quiet, you need to keep your head down, all of those things, automatically your answer is to keep your head up and fight and stand up. But sometimes you need to stop and say, you know what? I don't want to be like them. I actually want to dismantle the system. So all of us can take charge of this, but that's a really hard thing to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, you're right. We had to be fierce and ferocious to walk into the system and make a place for ourselves at the table. But now that we're here, we have to think about the other people who are outside the room now that we've made it. And um, perhaps we can't be as fierce and ferocious now that we're on the inside. Yeah, I think it's, it's such a thing that you can get caught up in your head about. And I think that relates exactly to my next question, which is on the idea of how individualism in this society harms us. And I was wondering if you had some input or ideas on how um, the way that our society is designed is actually not for our benefit. Yeah, and I, and I, you know, I'm not an expert on these matters, but I can speak from my experience in which I'm an expert. So from the lens of Community Fridge KW, which for listeners out there is a mutual aid project that uh, basically establishes public repositories of fresh donated food for anyone to take from any time um, with no monitoring, no surveillance, no data collection, zero barriers to access, uh, and the list goes on. Um, and it's part of a movement that's spread across Europe. It's coming in North America. We're seeing a lot more demonstrations of mutual aid as a result of the pandemic, neighbors grabbing prescriptions for their senior neighbors just because their immunities are um, you know, compromised. That in itself is a demonstration of mutual aid, even if they don't have an Instagram page for it. Um, so from that experience and from that lens, uh, coming into Community for HKW, where the whole premise is around everybody will maintain accountability for this project, um, and everybody owns it, including the people donating and the people using. There is no power differential. From that perspective, it was difficult to get the project started because they're, you know, people are used to operating in their silos and in their institutions and in their um, bubbles. So I won't name names, but we, yeah, we had pushback from various institutions who would like to maintain ownership of this type of work because they've done so since time immemorial. Well, not time immemorial, since the world wars. Um, and there's a lot of pushback to people challenging systems that have existed. You know, the feedback that we get is we've done this since the start. And the pushback that I come back is that's exactly why we need to challenge it. It's just because we've done something since the beginning doesn't mean that it's the right thing to do or it's relevant anymore. Um, and I think it's difficult because so many people are now, um, you know, in general, kind of dependent on systems and institutions to manage parts of society that they don't feel like they have control over. Mm-hmm. I go to my nine to five job. I know there's homeless folks out there, but like, what can I do? Like, I'm just doing my part. I'm just, you know, I'll leave that to the food banks and I'll leave that to the welfare uh, centers and I'll leave that to the government. And it's just like this general overarching um, kind of dependence and and uh, um, um, general like, you know, people trust systems and have always trusted systems since, since the beginning. And it, it is now that we're kind of creating cracks in those walls and seeing what's on the other side and, you know, recognizing that maybe this, these systems are no longer relevant to us. So to get to your question, um, it's been difficult to create something that is so decentralized and is so removed from authority and institution because people just frankly are not used to it. You know, people are not used to individuals maintaining accountability for a full community. They're not used to neighbors, you know, uh, taking ownership and responsibility for 
uh, their neighbors who don't live on their street, they don't, they don't even live in a home, but we're encouraging them to consider them as neighbors. Uh, so there's a lot of radical perspective shift that's you know embedded into the work that we're doing. Of course, on the physical side, it's a you know a fridge that people can donate food to and access food from. But on the non-physical side, on the non-tangible side, you know we're building organic relationships with people who come from various paths in life who would not have otherwise interacted and who would otherwise not have had that exposure and so would have continued to just let the systems take care of them. Um, but now they're interacting with one another, seeing and hearing lived experiences that they would have otherwise not heard and learned about. Uh, and so we're working towards breaking down those individual silos and barriers and uh, preconceived notions about, you know, everybody's within their own, I take care of what's inside my house, they take care of what's inside their place. Um, but now the, now we're breaking down those barriers and people are seeing what's on the other side and are coming forward and saying, hey, like, I see that you clearly, there's clear inequity and I see that there is something that I can do about it, even if that's just a few cans from my pantry or if that's just a regular donation. Um, so it's been difficult, but on the, on the positive side, I have to say that it's very possible. Um, I would say that people need to uh, stick to it, not give up and not take the first no. Um, you gotta, you're gonna hear a lot of no's and we still, we still do, but um, this is, like this was said, this is hard work. It's not going to happen overnight. Um, there's still people who don't agree with us who think that we should let it be in, you know, let it be the food bank's responsibility or let it be the government's responsibility just because it has been for so long. Um, but it, it's a lot of work to break down these individual barriers and silos. But I would just say that you have to start somewhere. And um, there are people, people are eager to get involved and they're just looking for entryways into things that they can get involved with. And the community fridge is a great example because. Um, there's nothing at, there's nothing on the table besides impact. There's no money to be gained. There's no you know recognition or no um, credit besides just impact. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I feel like for me, whenever I get that 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 comment of like, this is how it's always been for me, it's like, okay, but the entire reason that this sector exists is to make it so that the sector never needs to exist. The entire reason we have things like food banks is meanwhile to create policies where food banks are never needed because there is food security and we are eradicating poverty. And so like saying things like, oh, this, you know, this has worked all the time or this has, you know, occurred all the time. I'm like, okay, but then what if it, it's been going on for decades and decades and why are you still here? Because you're not doing your job right. If you're not getting rid of the issues. If you if you're doing this as a way of maintaining your institutions and you're in it for the wrong reasons. And I think for for me it always comes to and I really struggle with this is talking to people who say it's none of my business. Mm -hmm. Right? Like that for me is how is it none of your business if this person is across the street from you and has to live outside in the minus 20 degree weather, right? How is it none of your business if what you are doing is causing that person to be in that situation? And so how yeah. do you address those kinds of challenges and questions from people or those responses from people when you're trying to push and build that community? Yeah, it's a good question. And it really does come down to just an ethical dilemma and there's a conflict between ideals there. Um, and obviously those ideals have been built by so much conditioning, nature and nurture. People are coming from all sorts of, you know, um, uh, all sorts of lives and all sorts of existences. And so one of the things that a community fridge we strive to do is not, you know, push the project or push its 
push mutual aid down anybody's throat. It's constantly open. And like I said, there's entryways for people to get involved. And if people have issues with it, they will often reach out um, and will often voice their concerns and spread their, you know, vent their articulations to me. Um, and in response, I will often just remind them that it is not our place to judge or it is not our place to kind of, um, you know, create assumptions or labels for anybody. And it is only our place to create impact. And if they're interested in create impact, there's lots of opportunity for them to do so. And if not, I encourage them to continue going about their way. Uh, it is difficult. Like you said, like people will say it's not, it's none of my business. And obviously with people like us, we're, we're very tempted to be like, oh, but how, how can it not be? Like, how can it not be? We just want to get into the fight. But I have to remind myself, just like I have to remind myself to not drink my Kool-Aid, part and parcel of that is keeping my own ideals and my own ethical, you know, understandings out of that. If I can come to a conversation with none of that pre, you know, I've done all the critical work I've done. I've gone to university. I've done so much work on myself. I can't expect and assume that everybody else has also done that. So if I can come into this conversation with just neutrality, with just, you know, a desire to learn about where they're coming from and a curiosity about why they feel that way, usually that conversation yields a lot more value because even if they might not see what the project sees, they're at least looking somewhere else. You know, they at least showed up at the table uh, and we're having a conversation about why they feel the way they do or where these opinions were formed. And they're leaving that table with, like I said, even if they don't agree with the project, perhaps they're more inclined to just look out for other perspectives and opportunities other than the ones they believe in, as opposed to me coming into that dialogue with like, how can you not see this? Like, this is so important. There's people dying out there because clearly they're not going to see that. If they haven't seen that by now, there's nothing I or Aswa or, you know, anybody else in this room can do that will convince them. All we can do is walk with them. Um, so walking with is like a huge piece for me as a person and then as an ally, but also with the community fridge, we have to walk with people who believe that it's not their business and, show them that, you know, it really is their business because it's happening in their backyard. But we also have to walk with people who are using the fridge, you know. Um, we're here to not monitor their use. We're here to not judge what they're taking. We're here to walk with them in their story. If they want to take everything that's in the fridge at, when they come by and someone else shows up and wants to start a conflict about why that's happening, we're there as mediators to say, hey, 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 we're not here to judge other people's needs. We don't know if they're taking food for someone else, if they have mobility where their neighbors do not. We do not know how often they can come down. We don't know how many family members they have. All of these things, we just don't know. So what we do know is that we're here as neighbors to create impact. So um, it's not a one-shot one answer, but I would just say, once again, keep your Kool-Aid out of it because we can't expect other people to be at the same level of quote-unquote wokeness as us. And us enforcing our wokeness into other people is, is not, it's, we're not woke if we're doing that. So um, just show up to conversations with the curiosity to learn about where people are coming from. And that usually yields more value mutually. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like something that I always think about is the idea of how siloed this is and how I always hope that there is a way that young people who are doing this work formally, informally, in whatever capacity, um, after work, this is their work, whatever it may be, have ways to connect and find out about each other. Because whenever I talk to people who are who are starting this project, uh, these kind of projects are initiating this kind of work, the one thing that I always hear is about, you know, I wish we had these conversations more often, or I wish we got to learn from one another, or like, I wish I didn't feel so alone in this. How do you feel 
that we can create an environment where these kinds of conversations are normalized and we can create those connections in ways that are really authentic to us? Yeah, it's a good question. And once again, just looking to Community Fridge, you know, one of the things that was super exciting when we were getting the project started was that there was already precedent. There was already people who had done this. Um, and I think that can be, I think that's the truth for a lot of projects and a lot of efforts that are, you know, born in community, that there is someone out there who's done something similar, who's had similar intentions or who's confronted a similar problem. You know, our, our civilizations are no longer that, like they're unique and they have various contexts and there's intersections, but there's also so much similarity and there's so much dynamism that we can engage with. So that was a huge thing for me. I was like, there's already a fridge in Toronto. There's already several fridges in, um, Calgary, sorry, other way around. There's already a fridge in Calgary, there's several fridges in Toronto, and there's several projects in Europe that are also aligned with decentralized community care. Why would we reinvent the wheel mm -hmm. when there's so much learning opportunity out there? So before we even got started, like before we even started sending cold emails, the first thing we did was reach out to these people and say, one, we're honoring the work that you're doing. You know, we are just joining your movement, not just your movement, but a movement you're part of. And we want to learn from you. There's no reason that we would show up and just create something from our own heads and hearts because that's not why we're here. We're not here to be CEOs or founders. We're not here to be like, you know, have our names splattered everywhere. We're here to create that impact and clearly you're doing it. So we're gonna learn from you. So that was one huge piece is like, there are others who are doing this if only if we're once again, willing to keep our Kool-Aid and our pride and ego aside and focus on the impact and reach out to these people and say, what can we learn from you? What can you share with us? So. Very quickly, we had learned a lot of best practices from like several projects in several cities. And then we realized, we learned quickly that there's actually a network of community fridges across North America. So we are in touch with like Chicago, LA. It's, it's phenomenal. And we all have this last channel as well. Um, so it is really possible to create community. It's just, I think someone has to put their ego aside and say, sorry, I'm gonna reach out because I wanna learn from this person. And you know, we did that and now there's other community fridge projects starting in Hamilton, starting in Guelph that are now reaching out to us. And we are just once again, providing the same service that we were given when we were first starting. So um, I think just remembering that we all have a role to play, uh, whether we're starting out or we've been doing this for a while. Um, and um, you mind repeating the question as well? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I was talking about how a lot of young people who are doing this, actually a lot of people in general who are doing this kind of work, um, always yearn for connection, right? And how yeah. do you build that connection, that network? And part of that is even like knowing that that network and that connection exists, right? How can yeah. folks in Yukon who are doing work on equity know that allyship or ally squared exists and that there's this entire yeah. team of people that they can connect with? Yeah, that's a really good question. Sorry, I didn't touch on that earlier. So honestly, one of the biggest tools that we've used and leveraged, and I have to give credit to for building our network and spreading our word is social media. Um, I know that's not an, an anomaly and it's not new and it's not unique, but I think a lot of folks, especially, you know, folks a little bit older than us do kind of question and challenge social media's um, like use, usability and, and, and weight and power. Um, and I think even I coming into this project was like, oh, like, I don't want this to just become like another page, but realizing that with intentional use of language and intentional use of like, um, other parts of things that we use like accessibility, um, you really can connect other people and it's just a matter of creating entryways. So something that I've been saying to the team this whole time is entryways, 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 entryways. And they're probably tired of that and maybe don't even know what it means, but 
to me, it's a constant reminder that anything that we build, there has to be several opportunities for people to come into it. So obviously the fridge itself, you know, people in Kitchener Waterloo can come see it themselves, but our Instagram page, the hashtags that we use, the locations that we place, the alt text that we add, is all other entryways for people to come into our content, whether they're in BC or whether they're in Kitchener Waterloo. So social media has been a big tool for us to connect with that network. You know, I've seen so much of Ally Squared content before I even knew about Ally Squared just because of hashtags and because of the content that friends are sharing. So it's really neat and it's a powerful opportunity to connect people and learn from each other. Um, additionally, I would say um, it's, it's really neat to see young people who are, once again, who don't have their pride and ego in their way and they're having these raw conversations about like, for example, I'll give you a very tangible example. So, you know, a few weeks ago when the fridge was still relatively new, we were getting a lot of messages from people who were saying like, someone in the community came and took everything. They're so greedy. Like they're so selfish. There's not leaving food for anybody. And obviously we knew we needed to approach that with like, you know, we don't judge people. We're not here to make assumptions about people, but that's still a tough conversation. And I'm only 23 and I'm dealing with two cities and I'm dealing with several opportunities to create impact, but if I do it wrong, there's potential that I actually, you know, regress, that I can actually take people's mentalities and behaviors backwards if I say the wrong thing or if I get too angry about it. So I would say another thing is like, once again, going back to the piece about looking to people who are already doing it, learning from them. I imagine and I would hope that people are reaching out to Ally Square to be like, hey, you've done this work. We want to be doing this work, but want to do it right and want to take it further. What can you share with us? And then the flip side of that is obviously, once again, having your pride and ego out of the way so you can share that. Um, and it's, you know, even sometimes new community fridge projects reach out to us and they're like, can we reuse your designs? And like, I have to remind myself, I have to take my student council hat off and like, this is not a competition. This is not my design. This is not my branding. This is not my logo. It's just, we're all here to create impact. And if this visual that I created is benefiting their project down in Chicago, please like that's just an opportunity for me to take my impact so much farther um so honestly that point about pride and ego mm, goes so far yeah i definitely see that because whenever we create content i sometimes not as much for social media like uh, the reason we have our social media and the way that we do research or actually rather holly does research and uh, Cindy's team does all the comms for it is all based on democratizing information, creating access yeah. information. However, the fact that we're still a running organization yeah. with fees and costs means that we also have other things that we do charge for because they're our expertise. And so sometimes I feel really stressed out when I think about sharing that information with folks um, who don't pay us or who have paid us before. Um, but I have that nerve nerves about um, that I'm sharing it with other folks and stuff. And I just have to constantly tell myself, like Megan and I did training a couple days ago and they asked for a slide deck. And my first thing was like, no, absolutely not. We work so hard on this. This is like our expertise. People are going to yeah. understand it if it's just a slideshow. But then I was like, this isn't your like you didn't create these theories you developed them in accessible language you developed activities and reflection questions and all of these other things but this is not your theory. like you're not bell hooks you're not Audre Lord. you're not those people this is not yours you can't take ownership of it and then I had to like again check myself and say who am I to be that gatekeeper and so I had to swallow my pride and I had to say okay what's best for my organization 
and what's best for why my organization exists. And that's to make sure that people have access to information. And yes, people aren't gonna understand it as well as you know, if we facilitated those discussions with them, because the entire point of these things is to build that human connection, but at least they'll have a place to learn. And so if this organization decides to share it publicly on XYZ, then that's more people like hearing about these concepts that matter. And it, it really, that checking your ego thing, it I think the first assumption when you hear that comes, oh, there's those people with really high egos and everyone else is fine. When really all of us have egos, because again, like I said, we work so hard on this that it's very hard not to feel like, like when you spend 20 hours after your work day doing this kind of work, you want to feel ownership over it. But that's that's not how it works. And to be able to live in a society that constantly also pushes, we're in a pandemic, you know, we're finding jobs, we're trying to get paid and live our lives too. And so trying to say, hey, I've done all this th stuff and this is experience I have. So I'm going to apply for this job while also saying, I'm not the only person who has made this happen. I'm not the only person, without all of these people, I couldn't be here. And that this knowledge is not mine to hold, but at the same time, I've done something with it is very, very tricky. And it's something that I think has really screwed up the society we live in and screwed us all up in a way because we're constantly feeling imposter syndrome because of XYZ and constantly feeling like we won't be heard, we won't belong. But then we're also at the same time pushing things and taking over things and controlling things, even though that's not intrinsic to us or who we want to be. And so when I think about all of this and I think about, I, I have so many words all the time for the nonprofit industrial complex and I'm a hypocrite for also working in it. I'm very grateful to be in an organization that doesn't embody a lot of the toxicity of the nonprofit industrial complex, but I see it around me all the time. And so when I think about those things, I really think about how charity and the way we look at charity in this society is not actually designed for the people impacted. It's not led by the people impacted mm -hmm. and it's completely designed to be permanent when it should be designed to be temporary. Because what mm -hmm. we can't be doing is pushing for policies and systems to change. And so I interviewed Paul Taylor, who's a food justice and anti-poverty activist for our Ally Square Telephone a couple of weeks ago. And something that I asked him is like, you know, uh, Food Share Toronto has all of these programs that address, you know, the need for food security. But what are you doing on a policy level to fight that, right? Like, how are you going to design your system so that these issues shouldn't exist in 10 years. And so I'm gonna pose that same question to you is, how are you thinking about the community fridge in a way where you hope that it doesn't exist in 10 years? Yeah, good guy, Paul, love Paul, glad you folks interviewed him. Um, it's a really good question. And, you know, I recognize, I have to say first, like good on you folks for having these conversations and reflection around your role and your position and what you offer value where and, you know, what you charge for and what you don't charge for. I understand the Community Fridge is not an organization. It's not for profit. Not, it's not even not for profit. It's literally just mutual aid. Um, so we don't have to worry about like, you know, how are we getting compensated for our labor, whereas you folks really do. And so I, you know, commend you on that fine line. And I wish you all the best in finding that. And hope you do charge because obviously you put in labor. Um, but yeah, in terms of the community fridge and its role, we know that this is um, a Band-Aid solution. We know that the wound is bleeding and we've just come and applied a Band-Aid. We know that this is no longer, like we're not you know, eradicating the disease that's causing the wound. We're not removing 
the other wounds, we're literally just putting a bandaid on this wound so it stops bleeding. And one of the things that I debated in throughout my undergraduate was like, we don't need band-aid solutions. Like we need to be working on systems and we need to be like changing the way that our, you know, societies are shaped and the things that are embedded in us. And I would have, I was having a debate all the time with any project that came up that was like a band-aid solution. I was not about it. So I think after my undergraduate and once the pandemic hit and you start to see, like, you start to see all of these new wounds appear that are, um, that were not there before or that were there but weren't, you know, bleeding. Um, and so you start to see all these wounds and you're like, there, there's no way that I can address all of these wounds in one go on the inside out. But someone needs to stop the bleeding so we can assess what's happening and get on the inside. So I now understand that there is just enough weight on both ends that people need to stop the bleeding to be able to repair the wound. Um, but people also need to be working on that back end stuff. So I'm so grateful for you know, uh, politicians in our community like Laura Mae Lindo who are fighting and advocating for these things and who are working with community organizers like us. But I recognize that our role is a Band-Aid solution. And I hope that Band-Aid solution is no longer needed once the wound has been repaired and healed from the inside out. So a, a way that I'm, you know, ensuring that is gonna happen is one, we are working with politicians and advocates in our community to provide them with insight because we're on the ground, we're the ones collecting, we're not collecting data, but we're collecting qualitative insights around what the folks' needs are, you know, how often are people coming to the fridge? Why is there so much need that they're taking food, you know, this regularly? Um, and why is it so much different in the winter time? What services are not available during the pandemic? All of that insight we're sharing with them, but we recognize that we're here doing this labor in this moment and in this time. Um, and once again, going back to that piece of like all of us organizers have to be out of here in two years. That is my major intention for keeping this project grounded in need. Um, it's like, if I know, if I stay behind this project for forever and I just call myself like community fridge, you know, founder, I know that this project is gonna stay alive as long as I want it to stay alive, even if it's not filling the need. But if it doesn't belong to me and it belongs to the community who's already responding to need, when there isn't one, they won't be filling the fridge. Like there's no enforcement around who's filling the fridge. Nobody's expected to do so. Um, and then the other piece of it is people will often reach out to us and say, hey, we, why don't you have other fridge locations? Or are you gonna open other fridge locations? And I think this is a testament that a lot of young people who've created value propositions can attest to is like, we don't need to scale just because we want to scale. Mm -hmm. And we don't need to uh, expand just because that's what business tells us that we need to do. Uh, we're always gonna respond to need if a community center or if a neighborhood reaches out to us and says, hey, we're seeing a lot of need, we're seeing a lot of hardship, there's a lot of unemployment, there's a lot of people asking for food and there's a lot of people on our streets. And absolutely, we as community organizers and community neighbors are gonna respond to that need. And if we need to build another shelter, the community will do so like they did. And if we need to find another fridge, which was donated by a neighbor, we'll do that. Um, but we're not just looking to scale for the sake of, because we think it's a good project and we love it and it's just so fun. Um, so that's a big piece around that. I think it's not scaling for the reason and always responding to need um, and, and making sure that it's not owned by any one or two people. If it's, it should be owned, like you said, Osla, it should be owned by the people that it seeks to serve. Yeah, absolutely. So my follow-up question to that is, how do you build that ownership? Yeah, so there's a lot of facets to it. And I, we've only been open for less than six months, so we're still learning. But 
A couple pieces that are super important to me, one is language. Um, people are informed and inspired and influenced by the language that we use. That's why marketing and you know, uh, sales is such a big industry. And so as someone who works in inbound marketing as my day job, I get to leverage all those skills at the community fridge, but in a different way. You know, I'm flipping it on its head to do the exact opposite. Um, you know, we're not looking to people to trust us as experts. We're not looking to people to look at us as adding a, you know, a specific to their life. Um, or we're not looking to people to look to us as the, uh, um, you know, source of information around the community fridge. Everything that we share is like positing everybody as neighbors, positing everybody as equals, positing everybody as, you know, equal accountability and shares into the project. So I would say language is a big one for me being critical of how and what you're sharing and what impact it has on various people um, to make sure that they actually feel like they, they do have a stake in this project and it's not just coming from you. The other thing is um, going back to that entry, entryways piece, like we recognize that a lot of people can't volunteer and do fridge check-ins. Like we know that it's a pandemic and not everybody can come and clean the fridge, you know, once, twice or three times a day, but that doesn't mean that other people can't get involved. Um, so I've like gone out of my way, even when it's something that I have to put an extra labor to make sure somebody feels like they're participating, that's worth it. Cause that's the whole point. We're shifting mindsets, we're shifting perspectives. People are taking accountability, taking ownership and carving their own space into this project. So when someone reaches out and says, Hey, I can't come for a volunteer check-in. I don't have money to donate. I don't have food to donate. Um, and you know, I really can't help out with anything that you folks need tangibly, but I really love this project. What can I do? I have a quick conversation about what their skills are, what they bring to the table. And you know, very quickly, they're designing some marketing assets for us, or they're helping us get an article in the newspaper, or you know, they're speaking, they're doing a cold call for us to a local business to build a food partnership. It is obviously more work on our part to create those spaces. Cause yes, it would take me five minutes to pick up the phone, call a local bakery and build a food partnership. Whereas it takes me half an hour build the capacity in this one individual who's reached out who wants to help giving them the script giving them the number and then walking them through their first call but what we've effectively done is create opportunity for people to get involved and take ownership of this project uh, and the next time they want to do it they won't be asking me and very likely they'll be helping another individual who has that inquiry who wants to do the same thing um, so building capacity is a huge one creating entryways doing the extra labor at the very start to make sure people take ownership. It's not easy. Like it's not easy for people to take ownership and accountability. We as organizers have to do that extra work to say like, we are now entrusting this with you. We're walking with you until you're ready to take it on. We're not just throwing something at you and expecting you to do it. We're inviting you into this space for you to fall in love with this project and then to be able to create value through it. Um, so yeah, a lot of labor and a lot of love, but um, I think that's just part of the, mission yeah that's really interesting I think that's something I, I struggle with a lot is um feeling like while also doing the five trillion things I have to do the idea that I know I can do certain things faster because I built those systems right at the start and feeling really frustrated at myself for taking it on when I know 500 people on my team well not there's no 500 people on the team like the 12 people on my team can do it too it just briefing them sending them the documents then turning the documents into language that they understand because I have my own way of writing notes and stuff like that all of that takes so much time and energy sometimes. And Yasmin calls me in on this all the time is 
I just do things mm-hmm. like sometimes yeah. I'll be like hey Yasmin can you do this and then I'll wait a week and I'll be like oh my god I'm I can't have that discussion with her of like hey can you get this done because also I'm friends with everyone on the team so then I'll just do it myself and then I'll stress myself out for doing it myself I'll also stress myself out by being like okay this person isn't doing it and it becomes this like cyclical thing where I'm like I want other people to get involved but then at the same time like I feel so stressed out about the entire process of like onboarding and informing and all of those things. And it's something that I've I've decided that I'm going to work on, but like connecting it all like back to this idea of community care. I think I really struggle with the idea of how, like how much these people care that they're going to have to take all of this time out of their lives and all of this effort and all of this research and X, Y, Z to be able to do this. And I think I'm a hypocrite in telling myself that I can do it. I can handle all of this. I can put all this labor onto myself, but I can't push all of that labor onto like the people around me. And so I just stress myself out. I stress them out. They get stressed out even more. And I think then they detach from the work. And so I think it's, this is all like linked to one another, but it, it all is very, very difficult to overcome. And yeah, you're speaking my language as well. Like I feel that pain so hard. It's a daily battle and, you know, mad respect and kudos to you for, for even tuning into it and recognizing it, because I think a lot of leaders will just continue to operate that way and then lose their friends and lose team members and lose people's passion and it's good that you're at least like oh I don't want to be this type of leader and you want to build capacity it is rough and it is difficult one of the one of my favorite books that I read during my undergrad is called The Abundant Community by Block and McKnight Um, and in that book they basically game changer for me Um, and in that book they basically talk about community as something that already is abundant that already is competent that already is able that already is I'm willing, all it takes is a community connector, aka you guys, you folks, and myself to initiate that spark and to allow people to be able to do that sharing that they are already capable of. Um, so restructuring our, our, you know, our understanding of our teams, our neighbors, our friends, as people who are already competent, who are already abundant, um, and already have a lot to offer, they just might not know it themselves yet either. So as community organizers, we take on the role and responsibility of being facilitators, not only of the impact that we're striving to create, but also, you know, in the people that are hoping to join us. Um, We can't do this work alone. We recognize that. We know our lives are only so long. And um, honestly, if there's one thing that you can remind yourself that actually is of the corporate world that might push you in this direction is like, you there's opportunity for you, for your legacy and your impact to go tenfold. Like there's only, obviously you can create so much impact and have a massive legacy on your own, but if you build capacity and even five people to do the same type of work, that's your legacy. That's your impact. Like call it whatever you want to call it, but you've spread your impact so much further because those people are going to do the same for other people. So, you know, using that like capitalist corporate, like I want it to be about me using that against itself and saying, I can take this impact that much farther by building capacity in others. So like you said, it's a constant battle and it's every day, but um, just restructuring our understandings of one another as people who already come in with a lot of gifts and a lot of skills, even if they may not be the exact same as ours. Uh, And in that book, they actually call skills gifts um, because everybody comes in with different gifts. You know, someone who has a disability has gifts that someone who's able-bodied does not have. 
uh, and someone who is, for example, you know, of a different descent, who's of African descent, for example, brings in gifts and perspectives that someone who's white does not have. So just restructuring our understanding of each other as people with gifts um, really, really is a radical shift in like capacity building because then we understand that the, we're not actually building capacity, we're just realizing it. Oh, absolutely. And I'm going to, I'm going to read that book now. I really appreciate that. Uh, it, it, it's an uphill battle, I think. Yeah. You're doing great. Oswa. the fact that you're even, like, the fact that we even ask ourselves these questions, I think is a good indicator of us being in the right direction, but always more work to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm so grateful to have this conversation with you. I, I've always felt, and we both say this to each other every time we see each other, that we're like literally two sides of the same coin in the ways that our experiences, and not just as we went to the same high school, I think we just, we think very similarly. So it's always so nice to connect with you. And um, we asked this, actually, I mean, you go ahead. We, ask, yeah, we, we ask this question to every guest at the end um, of our, our podcast. Would you rather live a week in the past or the future and why? Well, uh, that's cool. Um, does it matter how in the future or how in the past? No, you can go as far okay. as you want or as, I guess, far as you want yeah. either way. <laughs> yeah, would I live a week in the past or would I live a week in the future? It's a really good question. Um, wow. Mm -hmm. There's so many reasons why I would pick either. Um, <laughs> I'm going to say just because... Um, I'm only an expert in my own experience that I'm going to opt in for the third experience and just live in the present because both, <laughs> scare, both, both scare me um, just because there's so much unknown and so much that I don't know. I, what I do know is the present and my ability right now. Um, but just to entertain the question, I'm going to say um, I would rather go a week in the past as opposed to a week in the future because I feel like I have more control and ability to influence um, in the past versus the future because, um, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I'm gonna stick with the present. It's okay if it makes you feel better. I ask this question to Yasmin almost every time and she keeps delaying her answer. <laughs> like, I don't know her answer yet. I wanna hear your answer as well if you have one. Yeah, I would go into the future. First of all, pandemic. I want to live in a life where this doesn't happen. The other thing is, I just like, I'm the kind of person who needs to know things. So I yeah. need to know if things get better. So then I can go back into the present and just address my life accordingly. So I need to know if the pandemic, you know, we create systems after the pandemic that reduce inequities. And that way I'm like, okay, we're on the right charge. And I can just, you know, I can focus all my energy towards this. If it's like, things are getting so much worse. I'm like, okay, I know I'm only going to probably talk to five people, only hang out with them, only take care of them. And we're going to see where this goes in the future. So right. I think that comes from my need to know for things. I I would do the past and I don't know if it's like the inner history buff in me that would want <laughs> yeah. to go to the past but I feel like we learn so much from history and if we paid more attention we could shape mm. the future better so I feel like yeah. I would take all of my learnings from the past and then bring it into the present that's nice mm -hmm. 
That's a good perspective. Human really, human really can't seem to learn from its mistakes, eh? Because like we obviously have gone through cycles and cycles of the same actions. Um, but yeah, it's an interesting point as well. The only reason I can't imagine going into the future is because I feel like that would completely destroy this fire that I have in the present, which is totally fueled by not knowing what's going to happen to like keep going. So like if I went in the future and I saw the community fridge was still running, I would probably come back and be like, ah, don't have to do that much work. So <laughs> that would be my thing. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. That's fair. The other thing though is the one case I do have for like going in the past for myself is my mom these days has been watching all of these like history and ancient aliens and all of those right? documents. I, I just want to go back to like places like so like we've been talking about Mohenjo-daro which is in uh Pakistan and they don't know how that civilization was eradicated I'd want to go do that just like spend a couple like I have a week spend a day there figure out like oh okay that's what happened okay now I know then go to Egypt figure out everything there be like okay adds up then you know go to the Mayans do my like seven day travel of answering all of these ancient alien questions I mean maybe yes. hang out at area 51 before you know <laughs> it got all, all of that so figure that out yeah. and then, but it also comes from the same place of needing to know yeah yeah Osla is apparently flying through some exceptional hot air balloon during this time I don't know how you're transporting yourself but you are I'll, I'll find a way maybe yeah. I'll create planes and <laughs> I don't know how um, before before I want. human civilization by bringing airplanes <laughs> into the picture thousands of years too early yeah probably it probably screwed up a lot of stuff there <laughs> but maybe they think it's like maybe they think it's aliens maybe what is aliens now is because it's someone like travel. me went back okay this is not for this podcast this is not <laughs> <laughs> this is not what we're on right now but I just wanted to say thank you so much for joining us and having this conversation I really appreciate it and I hope after the pandemic, we can grab coffee and talk some more about all of these things. So thank you, Camille. Yeah. Thanks for your time and for bringing me onto this platform. I really appreciate it. Sorry, Yasmin, you're going to say something. No, I was just going to say thank you for it's awesome to hear about what you're what you're doing. Yeah, absolutely. And for everyone who wants to follow you or the community fridge, where should they go? Yeah, we can be found on Instagram and Facebook as Community Fridge KW. If you had questions or you're looking to start your own community fridge and you want to follow my advice and learn from those who've done it, you can email us at communityfridgekw at gmail.com. Um, and I'm also happy to connect you to our network of community fridges across North America. Awesome. Thank you so much. So for anyone who wants to learn about Ally Squared, they can follow us at Ally2Squared or visit www.allysquared.ca. Yeah, our episodes occur bi-weekly on Sundays, so make sure to tune in. Thank you everyone for listening. Thank you.